is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. to the uh, final uh, seminar in this series. Of course, there's the Colson Lecture coming up uh, on the, uh, in, in early June, but this is the last of our seminars in the series on global refugee policy. Uh, my name is James Milner. I'm a research associate here at the Refugee Studies Center and very uh, pleased to have had the opportunity to spend five weeks here at the RSC and, and in Oxford um, working through some of the questions about the process by which, the very contested process, by which global refugee policy is made and the challenging process by which it's translated or uh, the process of contestation by which it's implemented or not implemented uh, in local contexts. Um, before introducing our speaker uh, for today, uh, Phil Orchard, who will be speaking on IDP policy, I just want to say a quick word about where this seminar series and this conversation on global refugee policy fits into a broader effort to continue uh, critical thinking and dialogue on the question of global refugee policy. Um, as I said in the first seminar, this builds from the special issue of the Journal for Refugee Studies, the uh, seminar presentations, uh, the podcast, many of which are available on the RSC's website, and Phil's will be available. He's wired, so I get the sense that he, it will be available uh, shortly. Something that we've also started to do is uh, a few colleagues around the RSC have agreed to make short videos. We filmed six short videos this afternoon, little two to four minute videos of different perspectives on what is global refugee policy, does it exist, does it matter. Our objective over the next uh, few months will be to have these videos online and to encourage uh, as wide uh, a range of perspectives as possible to invite others to make their own short video on global refugee policy, whether it exists, what it means, does it matter, how does it work, not only uh, to capture voices from the broader Oxford community, but also in contexts such as uh, Uganda or in Thailand to have uh, colleagues in the field uh, uh, extend the conversation in that way, uh, and also through a workshop that we'll be hosting uh, at Carleton University uh, in Ottawa in September, which we hope will be video linked. Some of the sessions will be video linked with the RSC here. So this is a step in, in, in the conversation, and I'm very grateful that Phil uh, Orchard has agreed to give this seminar uh, this afternoon on global IDP policy, looking at the question of whether it's a parallel process to global refugee policy uh, more generally. Uh, many of you will, uh, will know Phil uh, through his work and also as a visiting research fellow uh, here at the uh, RSC this term, but let me just say that, that uh, um, Phil is a senior lecturer in Peace and Conflict Studies and International Relations at the University of Qu uh, Queensland in, in Brisbane, Australia, uh, a, Canadian, uh, a member of the Canadian diaspora abroad, I'm, I'm very pleased uh, to say. His research interests focus primarily on international efforts to provide 
Institutional and Legal Forms of Protection to Civilians and Forced Migrants. Uh, his, his first book, uh, A Right to Flee, Refugee States, and the Construction of International Cooperation is, a, is an extremely compelling read that looks at this notion of um, the emergence of notions of refugeehood and, and refugee status uh, as a story that runs parallel to the evolution of the Westphalian state system since 1648, and I, I do uh, commend it to you. Uh, he's also co-edited uh, a volume with Alex Betts on norm implementation, which speaks quite a bit to the questions of the implementation and the translation uh, of policy uh, as they relate uh, to norms. Um, also, just to mention that Phil has a very uh, um, applied background on some of these uh, some of these questions. He was the assistant to the special representative of the UN Secretary General for IDPs before before beginning your PhD. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and he's also uh, and he's also research director of the Asia Pacific Center for the Responsibility to Protect, which is extremely active in the area uh, in the geographic area, but in the area of mass atrocities and uh, and forced displacement of understanding them and helping to uh, condition responses to that. So we're very fortunate to have Phil's perspective this evening on a global IDP policy and whether or not it's a, a parallel process. As is the convention, Phil will speak for 50, 55 minutes or so. There'll be a half an hour for discussion, and then I'd invite you to join us for the reception afterwards. But without further ado, Phil. Perfect. Thank you, James, for that welcome, and thank you all for coming out. Um, now, I should note before I get started that what I'm presenting here is very much a work in progress. It's a book that I'm beginning to work on that should be out with Rutledge next year. Um, so a lot of these ideas are things that are in development, and I'd welcome any feedback or comments that you have. Um, I've also had an ongoing English cold since I've gotten here, basically, so if I start coughing in the middle of the talk, uh, my apologies. Um, when James asked me uh, to talk about policy, of course, I, I was initially thinking refugee issues, and then I was thinking, well, no, I really want to talk about IDP policy, because I think this is an area that is really under-observed, under-researched, under-studied. Now, when I say a parallel process, what on earth do I mean by that? Is this a parallel process? Is this two tracks running and never to meet? Is this separate but equal? Is this uh, the two solitudes? Well, no. Why I argue there's policy here is I think that refugee policy, that global refugee policy, has provided an important stepping stone or basis or foundation for IDP policy. And by uh, framing this, I'd actually like to start uh, with someone who argues that IDP policy and refugee policy should be separate. Of course, uh, James Hathaway who argued in his 2007 piece in the Journal of Refugee Studies um, that refugees really needed to remain distinct from internally displaced persons for two reasons. The first being, of course, that a refugee is by definition within the absolute protective competence of the international community, which IDPs are not, and that the rights which follow from refugee status are directly related to the predicament of being outside their country of origin. Now, I have no disagreement with these two uh, observations, and I think legal status for refugees in particular is critical. As Arthur Helton noted, refugees, uh, refugee protection means legal protection. The concept must be associated with entitlements under law and for effective redress of grievances, mechanisms to vindicate claims in respect of those entitlements. But I think there's an element missing here that's also important and that links together IDPs and refugees. The fact that they are both groups that can no longer count on the protection of their own state. 
Now we have to accept that in the present day, in the past 20 years, conflict-induced IDPs and refugees generally flee from similar causes, from persecution, from civil war, and from state failure. Now by refugees here I'm talking primarily about people who would be considered both within the convention as well as who would be accorded some broader humanitarian statuses. Even though IDPs remain within their own state, their state may very well be unwilling or unable to protect them. And in at least some cases, it may be deliberately displacing them. Further, while asylum was the historic response to such actions and remains the best form of protection possible, it is no longer or can no longer be counted uh, as a given, particularly as we look at the development of the so-called containment agenda. A good example of this reflects Darfur. From 2003 to 2008, we saw 1.8 million internally displaced persons created, only 200,000 refugees, and only 20,000 people who were able to seek asylum in the developed world. Similarly, when we look at figures of total displaced persons across the globe, what we see is that refugee numbers have actually remained relatively static over the past decade, though with the recent uptick caused primarily by Syria. By contrast, internally displaced person numbers have continued to climb. In this data, up to 33 million, of course, most recent figures uh, released by the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre a few weeks ago point to 38 million as of the start of 2015. And so what we're seeing is a significant growth in IDP numbers globally. Thus, I would argue that global IDP policy exists but it is parallel to refugee policy because the international community has sought to duplicate and to adapt the protection offered to refugees. Now, this form of duplication and adaptation has been struck by the crucial issue that is limited by the fundamental constraint of state sovereignty. And that when we're dealing with internally displaced persons, the international community almost invariably needs to operate within a context of state consent. Hence, what we've seen developed has been a relatively ad hoc system of legal and institutional protections designed to be provided within the state. Legal protections are based primarily through the non-binding guiding principles on internal displacement, while institutional protections and assistance are provided primarily, though not exclusively, through the cluster approach. Thus, IDP policy helps to shed light on alternative to the fairly conventional policy process, one I'll touch on in a moment. In addition, it points to the important roles that can be played both by crises and exogenous shocks and by the actions of norm entrepreneurs drawn here on international relations theory. For the next few minutes, I would like to focus on this policy process and the role of norm entrepreneurs before returning to IDP policy and focusing on the key role that guiding principles on internal displacement in particular have played. Now, how should we understand the policy process? James will be familiar with this slide because he started his talk uh, a few weeks ago with it. The idea that when we look at a policy process, we can see sort of five stages to it. A very linear process, one in which we see a, the agenda gets set, policy formulation undertaken by policy actors, decision-making occurring, then policy implementation followed by evaluation. Now, this is a very conventional model, and we can probably all point to holes with this model. And in particular here, what I'd like to do is suggest an alternative to it, one in which policy change occurs primarily in complex, interactive political <coughs> systems. 
Now, the fact that these are complex systems mean that policies can frequently get locked in, that they can be predisposed to stasis. Change occurs primarily through either pressure or through a crisis atmosphere, as Jones et al. 1998 have argued, through the idea of exogenous shocks, through the ideas of problems of discrediting, of delegitimation of current policies. This triggers a period of intense ideational contestation. In the policy parlance, the policy window opens. There's the opportunity for change. But this isn't a clearly deliberative change process. Rather, what we can see is a number of different options being thrown forward by different actors. This is frequently referred to the garbage can model. The idea that we can see problems and solutions all being tossed into a garbage can and they come out linked together in ways that other people may not be able to understand. That solutions may be looking for problems. And within this type of policy framework, what we need to be thinking about is two big questions. First, who are the actors who are putting these ideas forward? And secondly, what shapes the range of policy options available to them? What basically leads to the end result we get? Who is pushing it? Is it successful or not? Does it get reevaluated or does it get locked in? Now, as I mentioned, I think the idea of norm entrepreneurship here is quite critical to understand these changes at the international level. And yes, I'm primarily by uh, experience an international relations scholar. And this idea of norm entrepreneurship points to the critical role that social norms play at the international level. Now, when we're talking about social norms, we're talking about uh, uh, an idea that comes primarily out of sociology. The idea that we are all bound up by these norms. That they're shared understandings that individuals hold. And that equally we can point to such shared understandings being held by states and other actors at the international level. And so international relations defines norms as shared understanding of appropriate behavior for actors with a given identity which isolates a single strand of behavior. Now, norm entrepreneurs are people who go out and seek to actively build new norms, to create new understandings, to replace old ones with new ones. As Finnamore and Sicking, seminal 1998, argued, these norm entrepreneurs have strong notions about appropriate or desirable behavior, and that they are critical because they call attention to issues or even create issues by using language that names, interprets, and dramatizes them. So, for example, a lot of early constructivist work focuses, focused on the creation of what are called quote-unquote good norms. The idea of the Landmines Convention, for example, that the International Committee of the Red Cross played a key role in promoting that convention by redefining how we understood landmines, by shifting them away from a discourse that pointed them to, uh, to them as conventional munitions to one in which they were framed as being indiscriminate weapons that targeted civilians. That represents a key idea within the idea of normal entrepreneurship, that of framing. I'll come back to that in a moment, because I think it's critical also to point to the range of actors who can potentially play norm, the role of normal entrepreneurs. And this has actually been quite a cottage industry within IR, everyone writing pieces where, look, we've identified another group that can be normal entrepreneurs. So a lot of this work started with groups like the ICRC, international non-governmental organizations, and the transnational advocacy networks that they were plugged into. 
Similarly, epistemic communities, groups of internationally based scientists, for example, were seen as important. International organizations like UNHCR, as Gill has argued in his book and as Barnett Finnamore argued in theirs, can play this role. So too can key international figures such as the UN's Secretary General. In fact, norm entrepreneurs have become almost so ubiquitous within the scholarship that it's probably easier to actually think about them as a category of action any group can undertake rather than as a particular set of actors. And this is actually one place where I think the IR literature can be married closely to the idea of policy studies. And in fact, I've introduced an idea of norm entrepreneurship based heavily on that policy entrepreneurship. Here, we're no longer talking about which actor can be a norm entrepreneur, but rather the idea that any actor can actually engage in a category of action called norm entrepreneurship that these are actors who are willing to devote considerable resources, material and or ideational, in order to introduce, change, or replace international norms in their areas of interest. Now, I think this provides us with two key advantages. The first is it means that any form of actor can fit within this, and that we can actually include both domestic and international levels. So we can point to domestic level actors being able to influence the international process. People like, for example, the U.S. president, someone who isn't easily accounted for within these theories. In addition, I think it's fairly good because it removes a certain moral language that exists within this literature. The idea that these norm entrepreneurs are inherently good. Now we'll see in a moment that norm entrepreneurship is a contested process. If we're equating that certain actors are morally good, well, what does that mean about actors that oppose them? Are they morally bad? Are they evil? Or can we have policy disagreements without bringing in such loaded moral language? Now, certainly there has been scholarship that has pointed to actors that have deliberately blocked norms. For example, Clifford Bob has done some great work looking at how the National Rifle Association in the United States and other arms groups managed to block successfully for a period of a decade the small arms uh, and light weapons treaties within the UN system. But generally, it's contentions over policy, over norms, and over interpretation that we see norm entrepreneurs engaging in. I mentioned earlier the idea of framing, that actors basically use frames as a way to create new shared understandings of themselves and their issues as being legitimate and thereby motivate collective action. So note here that this isn't just about creating a norm, but it's about identifying themselves as being actors who should be taken into consideration, who are seen as being important, who are seen as being effective advocates. Now, effective frames can allow these actors to advance their ideas and position their preferred norm within this environment. But as I mentioned, this framing is a contested process. And particularly Krebs and Jackson in a 2007 piece pointed to the idea of a framing contest. That when we're seeing these new norms being put forward, what we're seeing is a contested process whereby you're not actually necessarily trying to convince your opponent or opponents you may not be able to convince them. Rather, you're trying to convince an audience that your frame is correct. And of course, depending on the situation, depending on the norm at play, that audience may very well differ from norm to norm. In some cases, it may be the UN Security Council, if we're dealing with questions around the responsibility to protect. In some cases, it may be UNHCR, or it may be actors within the UN system. 
successful framing can therefore trigger a process of normative change. You convince an audience to accept that norm. But normative change intersects with policy in two ways. The first and the clearest argument here would be that policy is an output of this process. That once you introduce a new norm at the international level, you need to implement it within organizations and within uh, states. That's something Alex and I argued in, in our edited book, as, as James mentioned. Here we can see the idea of policy norms, for example, put forward by Park and Vettelin, that relate to shared expectations for all relevant actors within the community about what constitutes appropriate behavior, which is encapsulated in policy and are primarily subject to internal processes. But I think it's important to also view policy as a potential input or contestation tool in this process, where you're basically using policy as a way to trigger norm emergence, as a way to trigger a particular view of norms to be adopted widely. Now, what I'd like to do now is walk through how I see this framework actually applying to IDP policy. And I think we can see both of these aspects at play. I think the guiding principles, when they were first introduced, served this latter purpose, that they are a way of actually introducing a clear understanding of who IDPs are and why they required international protection. But that the guiding principles and the cluster approach have also become policy as output to a degree. That we're slowly seeing implementation process whereby states gradually accept these understandings. But that this process is probably slower and more problematic than we'd like to think. Now, IDPs were first seen as an international problem in the early 1990s. That, of course, doesn't mean they didn't exist prior to that. I've actually argued that there was a brief moment when they might have actually fit within the Refugee Convention. But certainly by the early 1990s, they got recognized following conferences in Southern Africa and Central America that had placed IDPs on the agenda. And in particular, following the flight of the Iraqi Kurds following the Gulf War in 1991. Uh, for those of you who may not remember that set of events, what, what occurred basically was uh, the Gulf War had occurred. The Americans had pushed uh, Saddam Hussein and the Iraqi military out of Kuwait, but had not entered Iraq itself. The Kurds and then the Shiites in the south rebelled against uh, Saddam Hussein's military, and Saddam Hussein crushed both rebellions very quickly. The Iraqi Kurds, who had been exposed to chemical weapons only four years before, began to flee the country in massive numbers, primarily over the Turkish border. And Turkey responded by closing the border. Within a period of a few days, we saw uh, the U.S. and the U.K. decide to actually engage in a humanitarian intervention into northern Iraq to provide assistance to the Kurdish population that was trapped there, rather than, for example, talking to Turkey or convincing Turkey to reopen their border. This was a fairly seminal event, not only in terms of humanitarian intervention, it's the first case where we see clear multilateral humanitarian intervention occur, but also in terms of recognizing IDPs, because the world's media was still there. This was the first time that many people saw the idea of people being trapped within their own country, having been forced to flee their own homes. That moment saw the United Nations as a corporate whole accept the need to help IDPs in some way, and the creation of the first office of the Representative Secretary General for Internally Displaced Persons, and Dr. Francis Daniel pointed to the role. 
Now, a key part of Deng's mandate was the idea that he needed to study the status of the internally displaced international law and ways in which uh, the international community could improve protection and assistance for them. Over a five-year period, that process led to the guiding principles on internal displacement. Now, the guiding principles are soft law. But as a policy document, they have helped to drive normative change within this area. The first thing they've done is they've introduced a factual, not a legal, definition of who IDPs are. That they are persons or groups of persons who have been forced or obliged to flee or to leave their homes or places of habitual residence. In particular, as a result of, or in order to avoid the effects of armed conflict, situations of generalized violence, violations of human rights or natural or human-made disasters, and who have not crossed an internationally recognized state border. Now, for those of you who follow the Refugee Convention very closely, you'll see here basically a lot of the uh, main aspects that we see today being problematic with refugee definition. Groups who are not included within it being included here. And in fact, this definition is left very open-ended. As you can see, it's got the in-particular clause. Therefore, other groups that aren't clearly defined here can be brought within this. Now, this becomes important in a moment because this definition has become regional hard law. But in addition, the guiding principles on initial displacement, I argue, introduce three clear norms around IDPs. First, that IDPs have a clear and universal status that internally displaced persons are a group of people who require forms of legal status, who are separate from other groups, including forced migrants and civilians. And as a universal status, it applies globally. We're not limited to one region or one particular conflict or to one particular cause of displacement. Further, IDPs continue to possess the same rights as other citizens in both domestic and international law. And one of the big things the guiding principles do is draw heavily on international humanitarian human rights law and analogous refugee law, and as Walter Kalin has argued, apply it to the situation of internal displacement. This includes strong rights against arbitrary displacement. The guiding principles also introduce a right against forceful return analogous to non-refoulement. And this is one of the clauses within the principles where there wasn't a clear prior legal international law establishing it. This is one of the principles where you don't actually have a solid foundation for in prior law. In addition, the principles establish a set of responsibilities. That the state bears the primary responsibility to assist IEPs, but that the international community also has responsibilities, including the right to offer assistance. I've suggested elsewhere that these three norms actually form the basis for an emerging global IDP protection regime. Now, even though these guiding principles are soft law, they have been widely recognized. And this has been one of the real success stories since they were introduced in 1998. That we've seen them recognized by a range of UN bodies, including in the World Summit Outcome Declaration. That document, of course, being the same document that uh, first introduced the responsibility to protect as a guiding doctrine. In addition, within regional law in Africa, we've seen them introduced in two instruments, the Great Lakes Protocol on Protection and Assistance to IDPs in 2006, and the African Union's Convention for the Protection and Assistance of Internally Displaced Persons in Africa, otherwise known as the Kampala Convention, which came into force in 2012. Further, we've seen a wide range of states adopt 
domestic policies and laws that involve internal displacement, and in many cases, reference directly to the guiding principles themselves. Some of these policies are very notable. For example, in Colombia, the case everyone usually talks about, the Colombian Constitutional Court actually ruled that the guiding principles sit above the Colombian Constitution for purposes of internal displacement. Now, getting the Colombian government to actually agree to that has been difficult, and you've seen a number of cases have to go back up to the court for adjudication. The result of all this development means that over half of the countries with current IDP problems have adopted some form of law or policy at either the domestic or regional level to deal with them. But, and I'm sure you were probably thinking there'd be a but there, um, this is all great on paper, but implementation has lagged. And here I'd like to talk briefly about two examples of this, the Kamala Convention and then a few uh, domestic policies. Now, the Kamala Convention is actually very strong on paper. It effectively brings the guiding principles, including the IDP definition, into regional hard law. So that factual definition is brought into hard law in Africa within the Kampala Convention. Further, it applies to both states and non-state actors. It introduces a clear right to be protected against arbitrary displacement, as well as an obligation on state parties to treat arbitrary displacement as offense punishable by law. It also includes a remedies clause if IDPs are displaced, and it has strong mechanisms to monitor implementation and compliance. Now, this all sounds good, and as I mentioned, it's been enforced since 2012. But the monitoring measures that are designated within the convention simply are not yet in place. The Conference of State Parties that is supposed to have been created to enhance the capacity and to meet regularly according to the convention has not yet met. Further, state parties who are signatories to it are required to indicate legislative and other measures and reports under the Article 62 process of the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. Now, this process, if any of you are familiar with it, um, there are some states that have never submitted to it. There are some states that are decades behind. Um, so it's not a strong reporting mechanism at, at the best of times. But of the 10 reports that have been uh, submitted since the convention came into force, only half even mention internally displaced persons, and only three point to concrete legislative and policy changes. In fact, the single state that points to the most concrete changes is Kenya, and Kenya's not actually signed or ratified the convention. They have brought into to force the Great Lakes Protocol. Further, state parties can also refer each other to the Conference of State Parties, which, as I mentioned, hasn't met, and once it has actually established the African Court on, of Justice and Human Rights. So this is an interesting clause because it does actually allow states to refer each other if necessary or to bilaterally arbitrate issues. But once again, none of this has come into force. None of this has functioned as of yet. We see such similar problems at the domestic level. So I mentioned that a range of countries have introduced legislation and policy around IDP issues. But if we look at some 39 initially introduced laws and policies, so the first instance of law and policy, I, I use that caveat simply because I still need to update a few uh, more recent cases. A majority of these, 29, accept a right of international assistance. 24 note that IDPs have international legal protections. And 21 that note that they have protection in domestic law. These are all very positive things. But only 17 of these policies and laws actually explicitly mention the guiding principles. And only seven endorse its definition. 
So what we see is a relatively small number of these policies actually using the guiding principles definition as they come into force. Most of these laws and policies either do not provide a definition or they may actually introduce a more restrictive definition than that of the principles. So, for example, that internal displacement can only be caused by rebel groups as opposed to the state. Further, while almost all of these policies either assign responsibility to a government body or create one, create a new body, many of these policies aren't getting implemented. In some cases, they haven't moved forward at all. For example, the Nepalese national policy on internally displaced persons is a strong policy on paper, but has never actually been implemented. While some have been implemented only following international pressure, such as the Ugandan national policy for internally displaced persons, which had very much lagged on implementation, um, though it sped up uh, once uh, Walter Kalin, as uh, representative secretary general for the human rights of internally displaced persons, and the Security Council itself, in one of the protection of civilians uh, resolutions, actually flagged Uganda's policy as being non-implemented. <coughs> we see similar issues around IDP assistance and protection. Now, of course, IDPs have no single agency protecting them. And throughout the 1990s, there was no clear institutional solution. When Francis Dang first came uh, into office, he suggested perhaps creating a new agency, uh, which didn't happen, needless to say. There was strong opposition within the UN and within other bodies, including donors. Uh, other proposals, including by Richard Holbrook, then the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. to give to UNHCR, similarly was contested within the U.S. system generally, with the result that what we saw was generally a collaborative relationship managed through OCHA and through the Interagency Standing Committee. The problem with this collaborative relationship is it simply didn't work very well. As one report noted in 2004, the U.N.'s approach to protection of IDPs is still largely ad hoc, and driven more by the personalities and convictions of individuals on the ground than by an institutional, system-wide agenda. Similarly, the UN's response to Darfur was seen as quite catastrophic. As one report by MSF Holland uh, noted, the distinguishing feature of the Darfur crisis has been the lateness and the inadequacy of the humanitarian response. It has been so serious that it amounted to systemic failure. Following that, we've seen the introduction of the now 10-year-old cluster approach. Now, the cluster approach doesn't identify a single agency, but rather identifies 11 clusters, each with an assigned cluster lead. The leads are providers of last resort within areas of responsibility. Now, there have been two evaluations, and this is one area where I'm continuing to do work. Um, but those evaluations have looked uh, have found that leadership, predictability, and the effectiveness of the delivery have increased under the cluster approach, but that we still see accountability being a major problem, as well as the exclusion of national and local actors. Similarly, Ferris and Fiora Rigoro, in a more recent article, note that the least successful cluster responses are those with a multitude of international participants, weak cluster leadership, and confusion about the roles. Then, in effect, the cluster approach is working better than the previous systems, but it's still not working as well as it could, in part because it remains ad hoc and fragmented. And so, to briefly conclude, I think there is an emergency, emerging global IDP protection regime. And I think the guiding principles have provided the foundation for this regime to emerge. But I think it remains limited in three ways. The first 
most obvious way, as I pointed to, is the inconsistent application and implementation of the guiding principles. That we've seen the steady move to bring them into domestic law and policy as well as regional policy and law. This has been very positive. This has been you know, very important steps forward, but they're limited. And the actual concrete implementation of these policies versus getting them on paper has been slower. In addition, the ad hoc nature of the cluster approach, I think, limits its effectiveness. And we can see here that leadership is critical and variable. That depends a lot on people on the ground. The bigger issue, though, is I think this regime is a recent regime. What I mean by that is it's embedded within a broader internationally humanitarian regime complex that existed prior to it. And so I see IDP protection interacting with a number of different regimes within a broader international humanitarian regime complex. We see overlaps between the internally displaced persons protection regime and the international humanitarian regime based on its principles of humanity, impartiality, neutrality, and independence. We see overlaps between the protection regime and international humanitarian human rights law, particularly through the guiding principles. We also, of course, see clear overlaps between the IDP protection regime and the international refugee regime, including the role of UNHCR that was playing in both. And we see the critical background issue of sovereignty affecting how we respond to IDP issues. This points to two critical issues. First, because the IDP protection regime is nested within this broader regime complex, we can expect to see a range of unanticipated feedback and interaction effects. We see steps occur that may be unexpected. For example, the cluster approach language is effectively being used today for almost every humanitarian assistance response by the UN. In addition, we increasingly see roles played by groups I call divided actors, such as UNHCR, which may have multiple and even competing roles across different regimes. Now, I don't think that these divided roles are necessarily problematic. I think UNHCR, for example, over the past 10 years, has done a much better job dealing with these two issues than it did in the 1990s. But I think it remains problematic for the IDP protection regime. I think these questions remain relevant and that these questions really need to be answered before we can see this regime solidify in a more concrete manner and until we can see IDPs actually receive the protections that they require. Thank you. And as I mentioned, uh, this will be a book hopefully coming out uh, late next year entitled Protecting the Internally Displaced, Rhetoric and Reality with Rutledge. Thank you. forward slash connect.